Our text today is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I will read it now, but we will come to it later uh, in the sermon. It's 2 Timothy 1.12. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. I have tentatively, in almost every sense of the word, begun a new series, Why is it so hard to believe in today's world? And thus far we've looked at two issues to sort of prepare a foundation uh, for the series. And forgive me if it's too repetitious, but I think it's material that is important. The first issue we looked at is why is the gospel good news? What is it about the gospel that is good news? And as we saw that for something to qualify as news, it must be an announcement of an event that has taken place. It must have a context or a backstory. It should reveal a different future in the light of that news. And it also transforms the present moment. For those of us who live after the resurrection, what we find is the good news is that the end of the story comes through. It breaks through in the middle of the story. We are given insight and understanding as to where the story is headed. And that is a new creation. And therefore, Jesus gave the great commission to his disciples. His followers were entrusted with this news, this good news. And he told them that they are to proclaim the good news. And when the apostles did that, what they did was they told people that something had happened that had changed the world. That the world is now a different place. And the apostles were calling people to be a part of that new and different reality or world. One of the problems that they faced, and we saw this in the series, is that the people that they were speaking to had a different backstory, if you wish. They rejected the good news because it didn't fit in with the story that they had been telling themselves. For the Jews, the Messiah was supposed to defeat Israel's enemies and not be put to death by them. And so they rejected the message. For the Greeks, for the Gentiles, they did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, This just sounded like foolishness. Uh, Their backstory did not allow for any type of resurrection, and so they rejected the message. What we find in our world, in our culture, our civilization today, is that many, if not most people, have bought into a different backstory than what is presented in Scripture. But somehow, the story of Scripture is somehow... They try to force it into the backstory that they have on their own. And this was demonstrated, at least to me, clearly this week, when a presidential candidate, who professes to be a Christian, said the following in a speech. Laws have to be backed up with resources and political will. And deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. Religious beliefs have to be changed. Well, this represents not only a different backstory, but in fact a rejection of the gospel as good news. <clears throat> because simply they're, they're not accepting that something has happened that has transformed the present moment, that has changed the future, that in fact should be seen within a particular context. And if this is what some are saying, then we can see why it becomes more difficult for us to believe the gospel in today's world. 
Excuse me for a moment. One blogger uh, wrote, and I think this is, it's been discussed quite a bit in the blogosphere, he's calling Christians to embrace what he calls the Benedictine option. What I call the Benedictine option is this, a limited strategic withdrawal of Christians from the mainstream of American popular culture for the sake of shoring up our understanding of what the church is and what we must do to be the church. We must do this because the strongly anti-Christian nature of contemporary popular culture occludes the meaning of the gospel and hides from us the kinds of habits and practices we need to engage in to be truly faithful to what we have been given. The church must do this not to hide away as a pure remnant. The church would be unfaithful to Christ if it did so but to strengthen itself to be the church for the world. A lot of people wrote in response to this, uh, particularly the matter of withdrawing, and then some people say, well, he didn't say withdraw, he said withdraw from mainstream popular culture. What I found interesting was what he said, that the strongly anti-Christian nature of contemporary popular culture occludes or obstructs the meaning of the gospel and hides from us the kinds of habits and practices we need to engage in to be truly faithful to what we have been given. In other words, our culture makes it difficult to believe the gospel. And we will look at some of these issues in the weeks to come, particularly the matter of practices. One more thing in this regard. Another writer put it this way. We are the heretics of our time. We forbid when it is forbidden to forbid. Last week, we looked at the second issue, and that is a theology of belief and unbelief. And we looked at it in the context of creation, fall, and redemption. In creation, what we find with regard to humanity is that they, those who are made in the image of God are to believe the Creator. They are to trust in the Creator. That is, He is to be trusted to command only what is right, and secondly, to promise only what is true. And if, in fact, Adam and Eve believed God, then they would demonstrate this by obeying him. And they would trust that he commands what is right and he promises what is true. And this is best exemplified in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from the tree. No explanation is given except the promise is given that the day that you do so, you will surely die. And the serpent challenges the the trustworthiness, if you wish, of the Creator. He says to the woman, Did God really say you may not eat from any, or you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He challenges the command. Is it right? You will not surely die, he said to the woman, challenging the promise. Is it true? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here we find something that I failed to mention last Sunday. Belief is tied to obedience. Yes, we get that. And unbelief is tied to disobedience. Yes, we get that. But there is more. And that is, belief is tied to love. Loving God. And unbelief is tied to the desire to be God. If I trust God, then I love God. But if I don't trust Him, if I don't love Him, then in fact, I want to be Him. And in fact, isn't that what the serpent said? The serpent said, you will be like God. This is 
his promise, if you wish. I mention this partly because it's true, but also we should not see belief as merely a mental activity. Yes, I believe something, and therefore, no, there is much more attached to it, including love. And then in the fall, we see that because of Adam and Eve's sin, unbelief becomes our default setting. Apart from the grace of God, we cannot trust him. We do not trust him. We don't believe that what he commands is right. We don't believe that what he promises is true. Our default setting is we don't believe him. And when he calls us to belief or to faith, he tells us that we are to love the Lord our God. This is the first and great commandment. And it goes on to say that we are to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. It's not merely an intellectual uh, activity that is to take place. That Oh yes, I accept that. But in fact, we are to love God, we are to believe him. And then in redemption, as with creation, belief is the key. God is to be believed. And God is to be loved. We demonstrate this by loving our neighbors ourselves. We also see that it is the fruit of the Spirit. I would remind you what Paul tells the Corinthians in Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, in First Corinthians thirteen. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So it isn't simply a matter of knowledge or of belief. It is, in fact, a matter of love. As we saw last week, one of the pivotal characters in the matter of belief is Abraham, who is referred to time and time again in the New Testament as an example of faith. And his faith was not a mere affirmation. It was not a convenient faith. It was a faith that was demonstrated in his obedience to God. As I said last week, near the end of the sermon, just as Abraham was called to believe God 20 centuries before Jesus, here we are now 20 centuries after Jesus, we are also called to believe God. I think there were difficulties for him. He was 100 years old. How can he have a son? There are difficulties for us, and that's what I want to look at in this series. Let me close by saying this, that belief is the chief characteristic of the new age. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and we are to believe. When I said in closing of, of the review. So let's, let's begin slowly. We live in the modern world, or the remnants of that world. This means a number of things. I'm speaking broadly here, and hopefully I will expand on this in the weeks to come. First of all, we live in a world of apparent separations or absences. Those things that should normally go together don't go together. In a book called The Promise of Pragmatism, John Patrick Diggins gives this definition of modernism. Modernism is the consciousness of once was presumed to be present and is now seen as missing. People knew it was there, but, but now it's gone. It might be considered as a series of felt absences, the gap between what we know is not and what we desire to be. Knowledge without truth. Power without authority. Society without spirit. Self without identity. Politics without virtue, 
Existence without purpose. History without meaning. What we find in the modern world are these separations. That is, what used to be holistic is now, in fact, a series of separations. One such separation is in the area of knowledge or knowing. So we now talk about objective knowledge and subjective knowledge. Before the modern age, people did not rely merely on factual observation and logical analysis. But they, in fact, focused on inner faculties, if you wish, intuition, faith, emotion. They saw the world as organic and as a whole. The knower was not separated from the known. It wasn't, I'm here, you're there, I will know you over there as whoever it is that you are. There was, however, a dark side to this. And that is that oftentimes, emotion, intuition, or even what we might call faith, can lead to superstition. It can lead to psychological projection. Myths. All these things come from this era. However, in the modern mind, we find that the knower and the known are estranged. They are separated. In breaking away from the old way, if you wish, of subjectivity, we have now sort of broken the bonds, and now we have these separations. And the Lord willing, we will see this in the weeks to come. So the modern world is a place of brokenness a place of separations. And this is seen in the area of knowledge, I think, supremely. The second thing about the modern world is it is a world of suspicion. Um, broadly speaking, again, we have the masters of suspicion. Karl Marx, it's all about money. Sigmund Freud, it's all about sex. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, it's all about power. But when I say suspicion, you might think, in fact, that it is a lack of knowledge, that we don't know these things, that we are merely suspicious of such things. But in reality, in the modern mind, it means we know the real reason for why certain things happen. This is seen particularly as people write biographies in the modern world. And I'll give you a couple examples here. Um, in a book called Rescuers, the Lives of Heroes, the story is told of a man named Mosher who rescued a woman in the apartment above him from being raped, and he almost bled to death because of a knife wound from the attacker. He, in other words, he rescued this woman, and he almost died himself. The author, Michael Lessie, writes, Some might say that Mosher overcame his failure and frustration to do what he did. In fact, failure and frustration were the cause of his actions. They enabled him to act. They compelled him to act. If he hadn't been so unhappy, if he hadn't felt so trapped, he wouldn't have acted. Because he needed to be saved, he saved someone else. Wow. In other words, he did not choose to do this. He did not risk his life. It was something that he really was compelled to do. It was not a conscious choice on his part. In other words, what the author is saying, Mosher doesn't know why he did that. I know why he did that. And in the modern age, there has come across this smugness, this arrogance, this cynicism, that in fact we think we know why things happen, even if the people doing them don't know. 
Uh, Joyce Carol Oates raises the same issue when it comes to the matter of biographies. Um, she complains that in so many recent biographies um, that the authors so mercilessly expose their subjects so relentlessly catalog their most private, vulnerable, and least illuminating moments as to divest them of all mystery, save the crucial and unexplained. How did a distinguished body of work emerge from so undistinguished a life? In other words, in the modern world, we think we know almost everything. And as people write biographies, and I call them masters of suspicion, it isn't that we suspect this is why they did it, it's we know why they did this. And you think that they're doing something for a good reason, like Mosher here, he, he rescued this woman, but we know the real reason behind it. The third thing about the modern world is that it is a secular world. Now, the word secular has different meanings, and I think for most people, it usually means neutral, or non-sectarian, or non-religious. So the public square is secular, that it is non-religious. Public schools are secular, allegedly, allegedly, because they are not tied to any church. And many people in our day would describe themselves as secular, meaning that they have no religious affiliation uh, and that they do not hold any religious beliefs. At least in their thinking, they do not. But it has been suggested that secular is to be seen in another light. Our society is secular to the extent that religious belief or belief in God is understood to be one option among many. And so what we see is a shift before the modern world into the modern world from a society in which belief in God is unchallenged and unproblematic, everyone believed in God, to now we see, in fact, that we have a society where belief in God is not necessarily frowned upon, but it is simply one option among many. But it is not encouraged. It is not the easiest to embrace. And again, the Lord willing, we will look at this more as the series develops. The fourth thing I would say about the modern world is it has a different way of knowing. I've mentioned this already. This is at the heart of the modern world. What do most people think when they say or hear the word knowledge? For most people, they tend to think of knowledge as information, facts, statements, proofs. In fact, knowledge is seen for many people as exclusively consisting of statements, pieces of information, facts. People simply assume knowledge is information. And just a side note, as, as someone who teaches, uh, oftentimes my task is seen as being someone who is to convey information to the students. Uh, I don't think that's what teaching is, because uh, if that's what it was, then we would just give out books and let people read books and get the information for themselves. I think teaching, in fact, involves formation, but that's a different subject. But what we find is that in the modern world, knowledge is seen as information. And with that comes an assumption that certainty is the goal of all knowledge. Certainty is what the modern person is seeking. And so when knowledge is seen as propositions, statements, proofs, 
then all other forms of knowledge, if you wish, are excluded, things like belief. So now we come to our text. And Paul says, I know whom I have believed. And for a modern person, this statement presents real problems. Because for the modern person, belief is subjective. It's internal. And knowledge is objective. You and I can share knowledge. But belief is something that oftentimes is much more private. Belief is seen as a lower form of knowledge. You might kind of know something, but you really aren't certain. Knowledge, on the other hand, is seen as certainty. So, one might say, I love a person, I love my wife, and people say, well, that's nice, but we're not certain. But if I were to say to you, two plus two is four, you'd say, well, yes, that we know. That we can be certain of. There is certainty there. The other thing, we're not so sure. And in many ways, in a very strange way, certainty becomes almost a cop-out. It becomes a form of escape. Because people in the modern world say, if I cannot be certain about something, then I'm not responsible. In other words, by insisting on certainty, then they are saying, without certainty, there is no personal responsibility. If I can't be certain that this is true, then I can't be expected to be responsible for that. It opens the door to escape. And the door, if you wish, that leads to irresponsibility. Well, this presents real problems if your goal is certainty. Particularly when it comes to the Christian faith. And for a while, several decades ago, there was almost this cottage industry of books in the Christian uh, ghetto, if you wish, on doubt. Um, But in fact, I think it was a reaction against this modern notion of certainty. See, if certainty is what you're talking about, I mean, first of all, that needs to be defined. But how can you have certainty when we talk about knowing God or, in fact, knowing any other person for that matter? You see, in the modern world, we have this separation I mentioned at the beginning. So that you have the person who knows and then you have the person who is known. And so, what used to be whole, what used to be connected, is in fact torn apart. And the reason that the modern world wants to do that is for certainty. Because if in fact you get involved emotionally, or in terms of intuition, or belief, or other forms of knowledge, then it gets pretty scary. So, you stay over there, I'll stay over here and I will know all these things about you. You know, it'd really be interesting this man, uh, Michael Lessie, to see if he ever met this man, Mosher. If he ever talked to him, did he get to know him? Or did he simply compile the information and the facts and then wrote a chapter about how this man rescued another woman? If we take the modern notion of knowing, that is, I am the knower and that is the thing that I know, then we will struggle Consider what Paul wrote to the Philippians. This is in Philippians 3. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
for whom I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Here, for Paul, there is a connection. There is a bond between the knower and the known. He wants to know Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to know about him. He doesn't want to know information or facts or figures. He, in fact, wants to know him. This isn't a question that drives teachers nuts. Is this going to be on the test? No, this is about a relationship. This is about knowing someone. You might remember that in Scripture, the verb to know is used to speak of the one flesh experience between a husband and wife. It isn't simply information. But that's what the modern world tells us. And so when we come to our text and say, and it says, I know whom I have believed, like, Paul, are you sure? Do you have certainty? Where is the empirical evidence? Have you observed this? Can it be reproduced? Can it be replicated? And suddenly what Paul says about knowing is seen as almost trivial, if not ridiculous. Because after all, it's knowledge and faith, and faith, in a sense, sort of pulls it down. And we as God's people find it difficult to believe. In fact, I think the difficulty that we face is that we become two people. The Christian who sincerely believes, and then the person who seeks to survive and to live in the modern world. And the pulling apart, I think, makes it more and more difficult to believe. And again, the Lord willing, we will see this as we go through the series. This is a slow beginning, and I know that. Um, Bear with me. What I don't want to happen, let me say by way of conclusion, uh, as a result of this series, is what I call the second year syndrome. When I was in Bible college many years ago, there seemed to be a syndrome, a pattern is probably a better word, in which every year it seemed that you had a group of second year students, second year Bible school students, who at the end of the service, at the altar call, would go forward and say, you know, all this time I thought I was a Christian, but now I want to really get saved. And um, I would argue, in fact, that these people were Christians all along. So what happened? What is it in second year of Bible college that caused people to say, I thought I was a Christian, but now I'm not so sure? Well, the college I went to, second year is when you studied the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. And what happened in these people's lives is that they came to be aware of knowledge, if you wish, of information, of doctrine that they did not know when they first became Christians. And so there came this this deep doubt. I didn't know this when I first went forward in church. Therefore, I, I probably didn't really get saved. And I would say that this is not the case. We are always learning of God's grace. 
more and more, day by day, His mercies, I think, are made clear to us. Our salvation is based on His grace and His mercy, not our knowledge, not our knowing of it. The comparison that comes to mind for me is between a husband and his wife. And they are with each other, and perhaps one or the other thinks to himself or herself, you know, I really love my spouse. And then that person begins to think back, but you know, when we first got married, I didn't love my wife. I didn't love my husband as much as I do now. Maybe I didn't love him or her at all back then. And the answer is, of course you did. Of course you did. Your love grows. It changes. It matures. It develops. You don't call into question love simply because it has grown. Um, There may be times when you say, it's sort of scary that we got married not loving each other the way we do now. But it doesn't call or shouldn't call into question the, the, the fact that you, in fact, loved one another. I don't want this series to cause such a syndrome. I don't want you at the end or at some point in the series to say, you know, Damon, I, I think I believed in the wrong way. Um, I think I believed in the modern way. I think I was relying too much on knowledge. What I hope we will see in this series is what God has done for us. It is by His grace that we are saved, not our knowledge, not even our faith. But what I want us to see in this series also is what it is that challenges our faith and calls it into question and makes it more and more difficult to believe. I've been a pastor for almost 40 years now, and yet I find there are days in which it is more difficult for me to trust God now than it was 40 years ago. You say, Damon, that's terrible. That's horrible. You're supposed to grow. And I think that I have. But in our culture, there are those things that pull, that pull us away from faith, that call us not to trust in God, not to believe His commands, that they are right, or His promises, that they are true. And what I want to do in this series is sort of expose those things so that we as God's people will be better prepared to deal with them. In some ways, I was thinking this week, this series is almost a series for the youngest among us, for Gracie. Because I think by the time she grows up, things will be even more difficult than they are now. We need to know how we got to where we are now and what it is in the modern world that tells us that we should not believe God. Yeah, I was thinking, I think Abraham would gladly change places with us and we with him. See, when God made the promise, he knew why it was hard to believe because he was old. Okay? For us, we're not sure why it is hard to believe. We just know that it is. We've got to figure that out and then by God's grace deal with it. And above all, please understand, we are God's people because of His grace. It is His grace and His mercy. The moment that we rely upon ourselves, all is lost. It is in Jesus Christ that we find our hope. Let's pray together.
Father, we are where you have put us. We live when and where you want us to be. There are challenges that we face that your people of other eras did not face. There's no use for us wishing that we lived in another place and time. This is where we are. To be faithful to you, we need to understand our place. We need to understand the challenges, the things that call to us, the things that make it more difficult for us to trust you. May we be able to say with Paul, I know whom I have believed. And say that in the fullest sense. And say with him, I want to know Christ Jesus. Not as a series of propositions or statements or facts, but of relationship. I pray that you would guide me as I prepare the sermons in the weeks to come. That I will present the things that need to be said. May your spirit give me wisdom as we look for solutions. How it is that we are to live in the world you've put us in. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for saving us for your great grace. Continue to sustain us, I pray. And now, as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.